Hello, what's up guys? Welcome to the latest episode of TPR Pod. My name's Ali. Uh, we are back after our break of a couple of weeks. You'll notice there's a few differences around here. New logos, new headers, new episode names. This is episode number 34 of the podcast. This is an episode which I was looking to do for a while. Uh, it's an episode of climate change, climate change and its impacts in Pakistan. We have three very, very uh, well-informed and very, very prolific people. We have uh, Ahmed Rafay Alam and we have Sarah Hayat and we have Dawar Bart. All three people are working in the environmental awareness sphere in Pakistan. Sarah and Dawar are also directly involved in Climate Action PK. I urge you all to check their Twitter accounts and uh, follow their efforts for Climate Action PKA for all their individual efforts and everything. And this is a very long episode. It's like two hours. Um, and this is not going to be the only episode we do on climate change. After doing this episode, I was sort of I was sort of inspired. Uh, to the point where I decided that the entire podcast uh, setup that we had required some sort of uh, defining, some sort of uh, goal setting. So as you can see with the new bios and stuff everywhere, uh, you know, we have some important areas that we're going to be focusing on uh, throughout the journey on this podcast and climate change and specifically climate change in Pakistan is going to be one of them. So this episode, I was hoping to talk to these people and get some insight into their work, the status of climate change and climate change awareness in Pakistan in a very Pakistani context and what we can do to uh, mitigate any future negative impacts. Uh, we didn't get to the mitigation part and, uh, you know, that's probably going to be stuff that we look at through future episodes. Uh, as we follow the work of these people and Climate Action PK and other people too, sure. Um, but what we did discuss was a whole lot of issues across um, across uh, Pakistan, all the provinces, border to border. It's it's uh, the floods in Sindh and uh, you know melting glaciers up top, and then the afforestation campaign. And what we have a Ministry of Climate Change. What do they do? Um, you know the fuel uh, which we use in our uh, trucks and buses and power generation and how that fuel is horrible and polluting the air everywhere and basically the urgent urgent need for awareness in the country with regards to climate change and uh, its its potential impacts and you know how we need to get people on board to rapidly start to change wide-ranging things in the country um, there's a lot of information in this podcast and it's very important I would say uh, it, this is an issue that is very important in my eyes and it should be in everyone's eyes because uh, climate change is real, climate change is here. Uh, it it was most recently seen by the crazy rains in Karachi uh, where we got like several months or maybe even a year's worth of rain in a couple of days in that city. Um, and, you know, everyone's talking about how the Amazon is burning and how that's going to have an impact and it will be doing yourself a great service to go through what all these people had to say, um, and hopefully tune in for future episodes. Um, do check out Climate Action PK. They are organizing a Climate Action March, I believe, on the 21st of September. Check the account. I'm not sure uh, about that data 100%. I think it's tr correct, but do check it out and do participate uh, if you are in the city that's being held in 
And also check out the show notes. I'm going to add in a few links from things that uh, Rafa, Rafa is like this hotbed of information. So he just throws, um, you know, stats and links and uh, citations and this and that. So I tried to find a few of them and link them in the description for the episode. So do check those out. Um, you know, give these people a follow, follow their efforts, get informed uh, and join, join the campaign to try and roll back the worst possible levels of damage as possible. Anyway, uh, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 34 of TPR Pod, Climate Change in Pakistan. Give it a listen. Let's start the show. I was just asking Sarah before we started recording, and thankfully she's not aware of the bedroom. Have you? I, in- I am intrigued about your podcast because I, of course, had a good look. Well, I had, I had a quick look, and right. I saw that you had interviewed Swinery. Um, oh yeah, and yeah. I oh, to know okay. how that went. Oh, it went. Uh, it went very well. Uh, my purpose, as I was mentioning uh, to Sarah before, was apart from the silliness me and my friends get up to on the podcast, where you have user generated stories i was trying to look at people in pakistan who are involved in new media which is youtube instagram that kind of stuff um so winery is is obviously a huge phenomenon this year uh on instagram and she's everywhere uh so it went well uh that was she's done a few other appearances which i think were more her doing her characters on the interviews uh, what I was trying to do was actually talk to her about how she came up with it, what the experience has been like. It went very well. It was, it was. Uh, she's very famous, so that obviously drives how popular the episode was. But you, you should get, yeah, you should. Uh, so very famous, just so you know, Ali. Who? Rafi. He's also. Oh very yes, yes, he's very famous. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, at one point I had no idea who Rafi was like before, like last year, and now I can't stop seeing him everywhere. And uh, I guess I was ignorant because I, I was figuring out how to monetize this, right? Because yes. this is all I hear, and it sounds nice, and it's great for the ego and stuff. But I assure you that it doesn't translate to the wallet very well. Oh no, that's <laughs> again, that's an overall uh, new media issue. <laughs> People are very famous, but they're like, how how do I make money from this? Because I don't see any of that fame translating into rupees. Um, oh, Davar says he's on the call now. Unless Hi, it translates into moral, like Hi, guys. That. Can you Hello. hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Everyone, oh, Sarah right. and Rafi are here too. Hi, yeah, I was just mm. hi guys. I hi. was just like hearing about what all of this is about. Okay. You can continue. Yeah. Oh, right. How long have you been on the call? <laughs> um, like for about a minute. Oh shit. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah. Great. So everyone's here. Um, we'll just dive into it because there's a bit of a time limit with your you all have lives. Uh, guys, thank you for coming on the podcast. This is. Part of my, uh, because this podcast is basically an excuse for me to talk to interesting people, and I am mildly, constantly depressed about climate change for the past couple of months, years. I thought it would be good to talk to you, and it was triggered by Rafe's recent article uh, for Prism on Dawn about uh, the government's positions on climate change, how we're not really in the right mindset 
there are problems we're not seeing, steps that aren't being taken. So I thought it'd be good to have everyone on. Then I discovered climate action, Pakistan and everything. So can we go one by one and just you guys have like a brief introduction of who you are, how you've got into this climate situation, and then we'll move on. Uh, so we can start with maybe Rafa. All right. Hi. Thank you, Ali. And, uh, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Rafi Alam. I'm an environmental lawyer based in Lahore. I've been practicing law for nearly two decades uh, and in, uh, for quite a bit of it has been uh, focusing on environmental law. And I, I don't claim to be a great specialist as such, but there are very few of us environmental lawyers. And this line of work has given me the opportunity to be around um, just about anything that's been related to the environment in Pakistan in the last 10 years. Um, that said, that's how I've been involved with climate change. I've been involved with climate change since 2008, actually, when I first wrote about it. Um, and uh, I'm an activist at heart and feel that there is a desperate need to speak sense to the destructive nature of our consumer lifestyle. And so that's why I'm here. Great. Sarah? Hi. Okay. So this is uh, Sarah. And uh, I'm uh, a lawyer also and been practicing for a while in uh, Pakistan. These days, though, I'm focusing on climate change law and policy. I'm very particular. Oh, and making uh, absolutely no money in the process. <laughs> the um, yeah. yeah. And uh, more particularly interested in the impact of climate change on displacement, uh, women and marginalized communities. I also uh, have a particular interest in uh, the psychological nuances of climate change, typically presenting in the form of eco-anxiety. I'm writing on climate change for Dawn and the news as well, and also organizing the climate strike with Rafa and Davar, and uh, hoping that people realize that climate change is uh, now a global emergency. Great. And last but not least, Davar. Yeah, so I, I've been working obviously on climate issues in Lahore. Uh, in general, my own field isn't law, it isn't environmental science. I am a policy analyst, a trained policy analyst at the time, but I sort of delved into PR consultancy, research consultancy, I'm teaching as well. So a whole lot of things going around and uh, in the process of I would say discovering myself, I sort of went abroad for a year and spent a good, I would, I think 13, 14 months in Europe. And this was uh, 2015, 16, 17. So uh, when I came back, uh, it was winter and uh, it was about December and Lahore was shrouded in smog and I have this routine that uh, when I don't have anything to do, like all of us have some things to do. I, whenever I, I have nothing to do, I would go out for a jog. And this time when I was doing it in 2017, when I was jogging outside, I started feeling really, really strong pain inside my chest. And uh, at that point, I realized that what we had been hearing last year, that Lahore has smog building up constantly, Lahore has a smog issue, the air is bad, this is how it feels to breathe that air. And that sort of bothered me a lot. And after the winter, I went back abroad. But when I came back in 2018, I, my family was sort of growing. I had a newborn niece and 
all all of this concern started evolving into how it could affect the newborns how it could affect everyone else my family friends so at that point it became sort of personal and to my heart environmental issues in pakistan everywhere else these are very very personal because it affects everyone so it's basically that's how my environmental activism came about and since then i've been involved in the science lenado campaign that we did for lahore last year and now organizing the climate action march that we're having next month very good um so two lawyers and a policy analyst uh that's i guess usually these sort of things apart from engineering and science uh, these are the avenues we would expect certain issues to come about with um rafi we'll start with your article in prism which is why i had the idea of bringing everyone together um what uh, this isn't your first time you've written for dawn or any other publication i'm sure what what drove you to write this particular article at this time um they asked me to firstly but i'd been <laughs> the, the content of it had started last year um right. i'd gone to and, and, and the, the chronology is in the piece i mean i was yes. in islamabad in october last year and i heard this presentation from dr hulam rasool who's a dear friend of mine right. and you know anking kulvi anking kulvi ki just right there in front of you the himalayas are gone at 2% and we're looking at 4% business as usual he says this casually in a room he's done 3 years of research on this right and this was also the same time this was just the run up to the conference of meeting uh, parties meetings which is this annual uh, sort of uh, a climate change meeting the un hosts and that's where the greta thurber imagery also started as as she had been protesting her parliament to say something at the cop meetings right. and so all of this was brewing in the back and i was i was taken at the time because around about november there were 35 november 2018 there were 35000 kids who protested in belgium outside the parliament right 35000 kids left school on a friday mm-hmm. and protest their parliament i mean i mean you can't get 35 people at the liberty market sort of round or <laughs> if you're having a good civil society protest right it depends so, on the topic i'm sure we'll get enough protesters for something uh, 45 maybe people. not ियलिटीट um i think sara had something to do with that mm-hmm. um she pointed them my way and right. it was supposed to be an assessment of the government's year in office uh from a climate change point of view and i completely forgot about that and i sort of just vented about listen man what's going on is that we are being not being lied to but we have these policy positions that we adhere to as as foundational and gospel truths mm-hmm. um and these policy positions have are now hollow because though it's gotten so bad in the last 25 years that we can't assume that the world is going to be fixed just by standing around right um, you talk about a lot of things so- in your article um uh like basically the glaciers being destroyed 
further we're building highways through the mountains that's not going to help anyone there is water scarcity as a result of our perhaps obsolete agricultural practices and we're told every day that we're a water scarce nation and that's going to be a problem um there's been discussion in the media that oh the wars of the future will be about water uh long before climate change was was in everyone's you know buzzword or dictionary these people want to sell newspapers yeah and the history of, of nation states and beyond that into into the sort of the world and stuff you'll find a handful of examples where two countries two nations actually fight each other over water people fight over water nations right. don't and this has to do with you know theory of nationality and governance and stuff like that i don't i'm not familiar with but mm-hmm. this is newspaper fodder right it really is okay. that we're going to fight over water. right but Bani there is says, the, i say in my article any about nothing yeah, but there is there is no getting around the fact that water might be an issue that Pakistan def. You did mention in your article that people say we're water scarce, but there is enough to say that we might not be um, water as water scarce as we might think. Do you want to talk about that a bit before we really get into things? You know, it strikes me. I've had the benefit of of, of meeting and interacting and being part of climate activists and and movements internationally. That the big difference between the global north and south south is where we sit is that when you go to these protests and you see the, the, the sort of discourse uh, and the narrative of the activists, they know who their bad guys are, right? right? But if you come to Pakistan and you ask people, all right, what's going on about climate change? You're going to get this technocratic babble about agricultural practices and the need for adaptation and resilience and all these UN-sounding words. Yes. And you go to sleep for a while. And I'm sure these things are relevant and important, but we don't have those bad guys right. that... It appears to me that the global north has in their discourse identified. And I was just saying then, well, you know, we've got to be able to switch that over here. And so if just for example, I pull the water card out and I say, all right, just let's take water. And we're told that climate change is going to impact water. Yeah. But then let's have a look at who the barons in the water sector are, man. And here they are. Lo and behold, it's your sugar barons. It's right. your rice exporters. You know, right. it's your textile barons. These are the yeah. guys who are taking a water. Right. Um, and also, there is a lot of discuss- because my motivation for doing this, apart from just reading a lot, is I've been reading a lot about the impact that climate change will have. It's going to be it's going to be the stronger storms. It's going to be the different weather systems. It's going to be droughts, have hotter temperatures. The Arctic is burning. Bolsonaro burnt the Amazon. All of that. There isn't enough for my in my personal experience that I see about what what we should be doing uh, in terms of like who is the biggest emitters how can we target them it's all about it all seems outside of the hands of the common person which is basically what i wanted this entire discussion to be about and that's how i guess the climate action uh folks also come in is i want to ask um we have these you said we have the the evil bosses that's the textile people is the sugar people is the agricultural people how do you think we can we can get to them because isn't Pakistan an agricultural and textile-based economy? And then, if that's what's running the country, how are we going to? Are you? Are we saying that these businesses need to go away? Do they need to change radically? How will we get to them? That's basically what I'm looking to find out in this discussion. Um, uh, can I jump in? Sure. Yeah. Uh, is this for Dawar? It's for everyone. Oh, okay. Sarah, t- please. I'd like. I'd like to hear your view on this. On what and how are we supposed to handle the sugar barons and then the industry? Like generally, basically, 
I'm a person sitting at home, right? And I'm reading that the world is going to end. And if we don't do something. And then I think, all right, maybe I'll use a bit less water. Maybe I'll I'll th- stop using plastic bags. And everyone thinks that if you stop losing plastic bags, the climate's going to get better. But that's not really correct, is it? So we're, I'm yeah, sort I of... Think- Rafa is going to be very pissed when he hears more about plastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I said that in the DMs and I got an exclamation mark while I jawab and I was like, all right, yeah. I'm definitely bringing this up. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of looking at, I think we're done with, you know, what is the science? Is this really happening? Right? It's really happening. What, what do we need to do to get in a Pakistani context? What do we need to be start doing from like today? So, uh, yes, sir, go ahead, go ahead. Robert, you want to speak first? No, no, go go ahead. Okay, so, I mean, there's absolutely no disputing that each and every individual's contribution to combating climate change is going to count. Yes. What, though, perhaps you'd like to specify is that the biggest emissions uh, or the biggest uh, emitters are, of course, greenhouse gases and it's it's, um, the biggest um, sort of emitters are of greenhouse gases are through fossil fuel burning. Yes. And um, <clears throat> if you compare the emissions from industries to that of sort of like the average carbon footprint of an individual, it's negligible, it's minuscule. Yes. But to project this sort of uh, stance and uh, any more is, I think, a f- is... Um, a- a- would be, if anything, and, I, and excuse me for saying this, but I think it'd be like morally... We be a moral sort of dilemma now because right now we should be projecting climate change as everybody's battle right and um which is why i keep stressing that every person should personalize it should not think that it's their neighbor's problem or it's their it's the leather industry's problem or it's the rice uh, industry's problem it's not it's your problem now yeah. If you want kids, it's their problem. Even if you don't want kids, it's a generational crisis now. And um, so there are a number of ways that I think individuals can sort of sweep in and uh, help uh, with this entire debacle. But uh, and if you like, I can list them. Or if you want, we can go into that a little later. But what is, I think, essential and the, is that, one, the people personalize it. Two, that we in, sort of develop and inculcate a sense of moral urgency around this issue. Unless we don't see it as uh, an injustice towards our uh, civilization, unless we don't get angry about it, um, and then have this anger sort of translate into action and, and, and shroud it with some kind of hope, there's not, we're not going to be able to help anybody. We're not going to be able to help the planet. It won't matter if greenhouse gas emissions get um, halved or, or e- even if by some miracle they get completely eliminated. No, it's every person has to, I mean, and think about it, we're touching a population, global population of almost about 8 billion people. That means each one of us, and each one of us has a carbon footprint. Collectively, that's a, that, 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 I mean, collectively we make a huge impact. Right. This also ties into what Dawar said when he was uh, talking about himself at the very start of this set, that it has to be a very personal thing, and he was running through Lahore's uh, smog infested uh, lanes at that one point and that's when it really hit home how real this is Dover. is there you you want to add something to this yeah so in a lot of cases when we discuss climate change in pakistan the 
idea is that since we already have so many problems, we have a power crisis, we have a slowdown in the economy, uh, people tend to ignore climate change just for the fact that we still might have some time. Nobody right. has emphasized to Pakistanis that we do not have time, that the time to be building coal plants was over the last century. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing that anymore. And we have um, we have a list of things that we should be telling people. And uh, a lot of people say that it doesn't make economic sense to be not building coal plants. It doesn't make economic sense to be slowing down our agriculture. We should be producing more food. All the all the Malthusian arguments as well, but the fact that the government should be stating that should be in our curriculums, that what teachers should be telling, that what even our scholars and clerics and parents, everyone should be telling right now, is that we do not have time, and at even if we assume the best, we might have a good one one more decade to fix things, and that's all. So, when we start uh, telling people, especially Pakistanis, that our per capita carbon footprint is very small in in comparison to the U.S., to China, to yes. India, yes. they tend to sort of think that it's not their responsibility at the time. So, in that sense, I think personalizing it makes a difference where people get out of the numbers and see how it's affecting them and how it might affect their future generation. Right. Um, I do feel that obviously there is truth to the matter that in the global context, because climate change is a global issue and there's global contributors, Pakistan is maybe not one of the biggest players. It's the US, it's China, it's India. There was a recent thing I read where Asia was set to burn up like 75% of the coal usage in the world, obviously the biggest players being India and China. But that doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're off the hook. Like, we don't have to do anything. Baki log apne masle samhalne. Hamara do itna contribution nahi hai, to hum, you know, we don't have much to Absolutely. fix. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this whole polluter pays sort of mindset has to be discarded with. Now we are all in it together. And um, so, and, and greenhouse gas emissions sort of work in a way that even if the emissions are originating from, let's say, the geographical expanse of the U.S., it's not like the carbon dioxide is going to stay put over the U.S. This is only American pollution. No, I know. Uh, so. Go for it, Rahi. Oh, uh, thanks, sir. Uh, you see, the, the, um, I wanted to say... This is part of the problem of the articulation of climate change in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, I mean I don't want to I don't want to sound flippant and call it a trope, but it's it's this established policy position that developed countries have different liabilities and obligations um, in terms of sort of what to do about greenhouse gas emissions. And it's true that de- developing countries under under the international law have leeway to continue burning fossil fuels until they're economies and people achieve some level of economic development. Yes. But you have to understand that these international agreements were written in the 90s, yes. right? And, and at that point, the hope was that we would reduce greenhouse gases. Yes. And the fact is that in the last 25 years, we haven't done that. These policy positions don't work anymore. Right. Right. The truth is that, yes, all right, right now, if you do per capita, Pakistan doesn't have very many emissions. But I'll tell you one thing. 
you and I know that for the last three years, there's been smog in Lahore. And it's not Lahore, it's all of North India. Mm-hmm. And that's there's a considerable amount of air pollution. It's from industry, from crop burning. Se. But I'll tell you this, this pollution is impacting the Himalayan and Karakoram and I mean, uh, these mountains and those glaciers. Disproportionately, according to Dr. Guramasu, right? So our little bit of economic development leeway that international law gives us is almost like a license to melt the HKH glacier system, which is the third largest body of water on the face of the earth, right? Our, we have to redefine our climate change so that we are not we are not beholden to these policy principles that are outdated. We're going to run a road through the most sensitive ecosystem on the face of the planet or diesel ke truck economy develop. That's exactly what Bolsonaro is saying. Licenses, my friend, and that's eco science. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Um, but then also, then we do, yeah, we we do. Then also, the the issue is that then we do run up against uh, the economic limitations that people are trying to fulfill, like uh, the CPEC corridor through the mountains and the glaciers. That's it is a valid problem and it is a risk that. But I don't know if if there's any hope of you know curbing that at any stage because. People will always see Kalke Pese before 10 years down the line, the climate scene. Wouldn't you agree? No, but why can't you change that yeah. now? Yeah, go ahead, sir. Please, go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, obviously everything Rafa is saying is completely pertinent. What you're saying is, is resonates with, I, I'd say, um, all stratas of our society, but the aim is to change that narrative. And I always say, don't look at economic problems uh, in while com- and compare them to uh, climate change by sort of distinguishing them. They, there is no hierarchy of problems anymore. Climate change is one of the bigger problems, and its impacts are going to pre- um, and its impacts will penetrate pretty much all facets of our uh, economy and and, and, our, and our country. So why should you think that cl- that you know uh, livelihoods are more important than climate change when climate change is directly impacting your livelihood? So uh, would you say then, uh, this is the pessimist in me asking this question, with regards to, for example, just this one facet of our problems, uh, the CPEC corridor through the mountains, third largest body of water, would you say we are not beyond the point of no return as as far as those plans are concerned? Rafa, you want to take this? Where we are? Well, you know, I wanted to address one of the things you'd said earlier, if you don't mind. We should sure. come back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Because it, I'm, I'm reminded, because we're facing... The problem type of problems we're facing were faced kind of ironically by the British colonials when they took over Punjab right. uh, in the 1840, late 1840s. There was there were like a half a dozen famines in Punjab because the English thought that the market they trusted the market and they thought that you know people would be able to feed themselves and all sorts of stuff. But it didn't work out that way, and there were tens of millions of people who died of starvation, and it it, it resulted in many things. And one of the things that resulted in the, is the British introducing a canal irrigation system. One of the largest in the world and it did many things it made the british insanely rich um but the punjab never suffered a shortage of food since uh, incidentally um so there was a there was a big thinking that took place and the results of those are very much part and parcel of who we are as an economy and society today 
because it's those canal systems and those cropping patterns that determine what crops are coming up, who owns how much land, who the big sort of uh, farmers are, who the big industrialists are, and so on and so forth. And you've got to understand that we've got an economy that's set on the bounty of the Indus Basin. Yes. Uh, the sort of agricultural potential of it. Yes. But this was a limitation, or this was a, this was an economic framework imposed on us by the British colonialists who were trying to do something about our food uh, shortages. Mm -hmm. So we have a similar huge problem on our hands, and we need big thinking right now to be able to solve basically the climate crisis for the 200 million people that we are. So we've got to think out of the box, and the current limitations of our economic systems date back to a colonialist sort of structure. Those aren't going to hold. We, and that's why people are saying that if you want to fight climate change, you've got to look at the capitalist, consumerist, fossil fuel-based economy that we live in. And we very much live in that in Pakistan as well. And it has to be dismantled if you're going to be fighting climate change. Right. So from what I understand, based off what, what all of you have said, and then I asked a, a few people uh, before the episode of what they wanted to know was, what, where are we in terms of simply the awareness of uh, what climate change is and the impact it will have in Pakistan on perhaps all levels, like the school, the children level, where Rafi was mentioning 35,000 kids in, in, in Europe and Hamania, Liberty, um, then there's the buy-in from the politicians, from the industries. Where do you think, where do all of you think we are in terms of just general awareness? Because to solve a problem, you must have to understand and accept that there is a problem. So in, in a Pakistani framework, where do you think we are awareness-wise? Anyone, if you can start. I'd like to add to this because I've had a chance to teach a few classes of ONA level kids in the past year. Uh -huh. And what I've realized is that they do realize that carbon dioxide, because obviously science, a few science textbooks tell them carbon dioxide leads to global warming. Yes. But I was shocked to find that they do not realize how that it causes. They have no idea about the greenhouse effect. They don't know the gases being trapped, how it gets trapped, how this, how this whole cycle works. And again, that might be due to their own, uh, their own teaching methodology in the schools. That might be due to students not being good or curriculum issues, but this is a general uh, impression that I've gotten from kids these days, that they do know about climate change, but from a class of, say, 40 kids, maybe one of them would actually know what's happening, and that one kid would probably have found out from someone who, in his siblings, or someone in their debate group or something. So. The issue here is that even the most affluent classes in Pakistan, the kids of the most affluent classes in Pakistan, aren't uh, aware as much as they should be, even in good schools. So that also tells us that in government schools, in public schools, uh, the situation might be much worse. So perhaps starting this debate and starting this, this discussion, uh, it's probably all of us would have to sort of lobby with the government education departments, like Punjab school education department, right. that climate change might, first it has to be contextualized, our textbooks need to come up with phrases and terminologies 
for climate change, global warming in Urdu and Punjabi and all the regional languages that uh, makes them easy for the layman to understand. And then they have to be taught from as early as possible, grade 3, 4, 5, not wait till 6, 7th secondary classes or to O levels. And uh, this is how we might eventually see kids starting to come out and realize that this is their future that we have to save. And uh, in general, the response so far is not as good as we might have wanted to. Right. Um, I would assume that because you're working with the uh, uh, UR Climate Action PK, the organization... Um, yeah, uh, so we're organizing for them in Lahore. Right. right. Um, so who... I'm sure part of the purpose of this organization is spreading awareness about the realities of climate change and its impact. Who are the people that you reach out to um, in terms of society? Because kids, that's one thing, but the solutions will have to be started today, for example, by adults. So in terms of like society, who would you be reaching out to and what do you think the awareness level is there in terms of like industrialized companies who may have a big part to play in emissions the everyday person who isn't really uh involved in a in a in a large-scale manner but still could learn from it how who are the people you've been uh talking so, to so so i would give one example that we have had representatives from the punjab kisan rapta committee in mm-hmm. our meetings okay so you talk to them and you realize that a lot of them have be have been seeing their uh, cultivatable land being reduced, their crop overall crop uh, turnout being reduced, and they realize that this is because they have been uh, their their practices, their ag- their agricultural patterns have been not what they should have been doing, and now the land and the soil doesn't have the nutrients to continuously producing the same crop. So they realize that their practices are not climate friendly, they are not sustainable. But they also have this helplessness that there is no expertise, no experts, no research being fed to them in uh, not in very, very simple terms that they might fix this cycle. So they have developed their own sort of uh, discussion, small discussion groups, small WhatsApp groups, and they share new information when a certain GMO comes up, they try to inform everyone that they shouldn't be using this. So there are certain indigenous forms of awareness growing. We see a lot of people coming up with solutions themselves because the state hasn't intervened at this point. Uh, that is similar to what we're seeing in cities. That citizens are grouping together. They, for smog, we group together. We try to get more data. We try to understand it. And when we had a solid understanding of it, we started to design a PR campaign, an awareness campaign. We went all the way to the high court and had Justice Jawad Hassan telling that if a petition comes up regarding fuel quality, he would want the government to act on it. So all of this starts from the ground level, but uh, you're right in the sense that maybe we need to be more forcefully knocking certain doors to get a response out of them. Yeah, because... Yeah. Like to add to what Dawar said, if I can. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so I think Dawar's point about uh, injecting climate change into the national curriculum, into school curriculums, is absolutely seminal. 
बिकॉज बच्चों को वही तो नाजिल होएगी नहीं उन पे या उनके अम्मी अबू बताएंगे और या यू नो लाइक दे गो स्टडी अबाउट इन स्कूल आइडियली बोथ बट सो फॉर फॉर चिल्ड्रन इट्स एब्सोल्युटली मैंडेटरी दैट द नेशनल करिकुलम बी रिवाइज टू इंक्लूड क्लाइमेट चेंज एंड देन आल्सो इन अ फैशन दैट डजंट स्केयर किड्स सो इट हैज टू बी एट एट देयर लेवल इट हैज टू स्टेट सम फैक्ट्स इट हैज टू टेल देम इट हैज टू गिव देम होप एंड गेट सॉर्ट ऑफ बैलेंस हाउ डायर द सिचुएशन इज and 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 the other also pointed out that we are we are um, that uh, kisan rabta committee joins us for our climate action meetings but i had occasion to visit um sind for a project uh, on climate induced displacement and at a very grassroots level um i saw the people farmers mostly a lot of them uh, fishermen uh, women in particular they know that something's amiss they know that the weather patterns have changed they know that now you know rain is coming a couple of weeks later right. the harvest periods have changed but they have no idea what's causing it so for them ye literally qiyamat ki nishani ban jati hai and it is it is absolutely mandatory for the government to sweep in and spread this grassroots level awareness but they don't and instead it is international organizations and like and and I and I'm going to be uh, bold enough to say that uh, world the world bank and oxfam and unicef and all they're doing more for this for spreading this awareness uh, for our country than the government is than the local government is um and then lastly uh, because uh, i believe you asked about awareness and all strategies I think even in drawing room conversations everybody knows about climate change everybody knows it's the elephant in the room so to speak but yet there are too many misconceptions surrounding it people feel like most of the statistics because they're dreary are yes. not accurate they don't know how to process uh, the kind of news that they come across i mean for them for an average person who's not in who's not studying about climate change on working in the area when you read something along the lines of 150 million people will die if one degree if there's a 1 degree change in or a 1 degree increase in global weather temperature uh, in global uh, temperatures i mean they read it and they think what kind of nonsense is this this is not even possible you know so um it's mandatory that uh, awareness sort of be bottom the approach to spread awareness not just be bottoms up but uh, but but if, but everybody should take the initiative of researching on climate change themselves i mean google is your favorite ally here really right and and this does make sense that the first people to really feel that something's wrong is the people who are directly affected by changing uh, climate and environmental issues which would be the agricultural side of the country um and and also the fact that you said that you know bachcho ko padhana chahiye but aise nahi ke wo dar jaye that sort of ties into your uh, work being done on the psychological effects of hearing that the climate is changing or maybe experiencing these changes because i live far away in a place that's not really being affected at the moment and is doing fine but i'm reading about climate change every day and i'm like the world is going to end there's no hope for the future and the problem just seems so huge for the It's average awesome. person's perspective that mm. you know like you said 150 million people will die you're like that's not even a real number like that i can't even begin to put that into my life's context um so then this also ties into rafi's article which was about the ministry of climate change which i didn't know we had a ministry of climate change and their performance over the past year a lot of this work is is best done 
I mean, individuals can contribute a lot and organizations and NGOs can do that as well. But the people best positioned to do this in an ideal world would be the government. And what is the level of buy-in to the reality of the problem and the scope of its impact at the government level? And and are they really motivated or is it just people, you know, we had a position, climate change ministry. Um, how, how is that? playing out in Pakistan. So, you know, and this is, I mean, it's, we should, it's, it's ironic that we have a ministry of climate change, but we're one of the few countries in the developing world that actually boasts uh, that level of government focus on climate change, right? Um, this is new, you, right? It, it, it dates back to 2013, and okay. the precursor was, I mean, it was after the 18th Amendment, they created the ministry of climate change. Right. Um, but its, its primary responsibility is to make sure that Pakistan's obligations under climate change and other environmental treaties are fulfilled. And so you ask, okay, what are these obligations? And for instance, the Paris Agreement, which Pakistan also proudly says that it's ratified, right. and which Pakistan also says that it complies with, um, is a bit of a red herring because uh, the Paris Agreement is, is voluntary. It, it, it's not binding on countries, and if you which look is, at I guess, one of which was touted to be one of the main failings of the agreement itself. Okay, there's no real obligation incident, to do it. That was, that was the softening John Kerry requested so that he could convince his uh, Congress to vote for it. Hmm. That was the condition that he brought to the table for America's support to the Paris Agreement was to make and it voluntary. Pulled out anyway. I know it's it's quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, but back to the Ministry of Climate Change, you have to ask yourself what they're, what they're supposed to be doing. So yes. they're responsible for all this reporting, and that requires a lot of documentation. It requires a lot of traveling because you have to go to all these conventions and these meetings. Um, but if you, if you were to ask me that are these guys actually doing something about improving fuel standards so that we emit fewer greenhouse gases, yes. or whether they're actively implementing the fourth national flood protection plan so that our adaptation strategy to further floods and monsoon rains can be complied with? I'd say no, because that's not their responsibility. And that's just the way government works. All right. So I, I, the reason I say it's ironic we have a Ministry of Climate Change is that it, it exists and it does what it's supposed to do, but it also leaves this perception that it's there doing its job. And that right. job, what it has to do with climate change in Pakistan, well, we've got a ministry of climate change and so, so everything must be okay. Right. Good order. Um, but that's not the case. Ministry of Climate Change mm-hmm. Um And at this point in time, uh, actually this with this government, I just want to make a point here. Uh, with this government, there is a 7.5 and some change billion rupees worth of budget with the Ministry of Climate Change this year for the afforestation program, the 10 billion tree tsunami. Right. And if you, if you, yeah, so, it, 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 so that's the budget of the Ministry of Climate Change. Um, and the most, the largest part of it is this afforestation program. So if you take the afforestation program out of the Ministry of Climate Change's budget, what you're left with is something close to, I think, 700, it's like 75 million rupees. Um, which is all the money they need to do their documentation. And also, which means they're not really expected to be doing anything apart from 
But that's because our policy position is that we're a developing country and we don't need to do anything about greenhouse gas emissions. But the truth of the matter is we've got an air quality emergency and that has a large part to do with the horrendously dirty petrol that we use Mm -hmm. uh, in transport, in our energy sector and also the type of fuels that we use in our industry sector. We have to understand that we can't hide behind this policy principle on the one hand and have filthy, filthy air. Filthy air is greenhouse gases. I mean, the between air pollution and, and climate change is simple. Most of the air pollutants are greenhouse gases. Yes. You reduce greenhouse gases, you're improving air quality. You improve air quality, you get better health results, and that re- reduces your burden of disease and the cost you have to put up into health infrastructure. I mean, right. these lines are clearly drawn, but they have to be articulated more strongly. And it's I, this is not what the Ministry of Climate Change is doing. And if you ask me, this is, again, not their job. This would be the job of the gov- provincial governments to be able to have robust health policies and stronger environment protection and climate change departments at a provincial level that would be looking into these things. But it's been, you know, six, seven, eight years since the 18th Amendment, and none of the provinces have actually moved on climate change, which is quite remarkable. Do you think it's ignorance or apathy? Yeah, I think or a it's... Bit about. Uh, well, it's that famous Atif Mia question. Now, is it incompetence or corruption, which is worse? I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. Right. Um, but I want to touch upon what, what uh, Sarah has been talking about and, and what you're also mentioning. And I don't know. I don't know whether, I don't know how much use hope can be when it is well understood that we are so running out of time. The way climate change is going to impact us is going to be, it's not going to be country by country, it's actually going to be across economic spectrum. The poor are going to get hit hardest. And the truth is, Pakistan's a poor country. And the big fight is going to be between the the rich, uh, us type of English speaking, computer using, uh, and the folks in the the villages and in the fields. It's going to play out that way. Yeah, this also and, links into what I was thinking when uh, Dawar was talking about the uh, O-level uh, students. They themselves would be a minority in the overall... People in school are a minority in Pakistan. Usme se Mazid, I think I recently heard Imran Khan say it's maybe like 800,000 people in private schools. I'm assuming all private schools are O-levels, maybe. That's not true, but just for the ease of math. So 800,000 kids who out of whom maybe 5% know what climate change is, in the context of the overall youth population of Pakistan, that is nothing. Um, and, and The thing is, it's, it's beyond teaching the kids. I mean, we don't have time. Yeah, the uh, kids are going to grow up in 15, 20 years, by which time it's done. The, you have to dismantle the capitalist, fossil fuel-based consumerist economy that we live in. So, uh, I just wanted to circle back. Dawar, you mentioned that uh, one of the initial steps with the smog thing was was highlighting the main contributors to the smog issue in Lahore. Um, being a very extremely online person on Twitter, I saw a lot of uh, people saying, oh, this is India, it's pollution, and then it's Lahore. Would you speak about the smog situation in Lahore? Because that's something everyone can see or breathe. Literally. Yeah, so... So I think this is one thing, even in the morning I was reading an article on Bloomberg and they published that Congo right now has more fires than the Amazon rainforest. And people were crying about it and we are freaking out that even in Central Africa we are having lots of fires. But there was the difference that Central African fires were agricultural fires. They are burning their crop waste and that's what we do in winter and in May. So, first, people need to understand that crop fires happen on both sides of the border. 
we do it in Hafsabad, in our Sirboda districts, in uh, Shekhupura districts, because these are the areas where we're growing crops at that time. And similarly, India has a similar issue. They do it in Haryana, mostly in Punjab, but somewhat in Haryana as well. So it's not that India is sending the smog to us. We have our air quality is bad all around the year. It's just that in winter, the temperature inversion and the confluence of climatic patterns, the low temperatures, create, turns it into smog. I'm pretty sure if you turn on air visual right now, Lahore's air quality would be either moderate or unhealthy for sensitive people. In winter, it just becomes unhealthy or hazardous for everyone. So this is something I pointed out and I wrote a piece for Dawn as well that uh, our state minister for climate change was, uh, she said it in the parliament, in the senate, that uh, India is doing fifth generation warfare yeah. by sending this smog towards us. But again, when they, you ask them that your own reports from Punjab's agricultural department and uh, a report by the Environment Protection Agency, Park EPA, both says that the biggest contributor to bad air quality is diesel, the Euro 2 diesel that we use. And other than that, we have furnace oil power plants and the coal plants, the coal being used in industrial, uh, industrial states as well. So your own government reports say all of these things, that it's fuel quality, it's fuel quality, it's bad diesel. But as soon as smog comes up, you bring an image from a publicly accessible NASA website and say, look, there are more hot spots on their side of the border. And then claim that India is doing this. So that sort of uh, reduces the whole science to a few seconds on media. And media obviously picks this up, that India is doing this. Obviously, they have, they are a big country contributor in this. But our air quality in Lahore, Kasur, Shehupura, it's bad throughout the year. There's no doubt about that. And what we can do at this point is start realizing that to fix this, we have to fix our fuel quality. We have to introduce vehicle restrictions in Lahore. We have to start moving people to public transport. And that's the only way Lahore can survive in the next few years. The other thing the government has been doing is constantly saying that planting trees in Lahore is going to fix this. Uh, the afforestation campaigns, all of that, they continuously emphasize that planting trees are going to. Planting trees is a very good idea. It needs to be done in Lahore, all over Punjab. It's a way to remove carbon out of the air. But the smog issue is very, very different from this because the pollutants causing it is not carbon dioxide. The pollutants causing it are nitric oxide, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and these come from bad diesel. So in a sense that you're telling people that the cure is planting trees while it isn't, while you're diagnosing the disease all wrong. So at that point, the, this obviously really pisses off everyone who knows what's happening. And it sort of also reduces our trust in the government that do they actually know what they're doing? Do they know what needs to be done? And again, that feeds back into the civil society narrative that it's point that we do something because clearly the state isn't going to do something. Right. And also it's the same uh, ignorance versus apathy. Like, do they know 
what's causing the pollution and are they consciously saying ki ha ye india fifth generation warfare kar raha or are they just completely out of their depth and i think rafi also mentioned that it's great that we're pointing planting trees but it doesn't really solve the problem of like i think you said setting fire to the roof of the world um yeah, yeah. so there is clearly a disconnect between uh, this is also the tree afforestation thing is also the ministry of climate change uh, at work so there's clearly a disconnect between what the issues yeah, you are see, you, so you hear the ministry of climate change doing a lot of these things but as they say that trump is the president of the united states but we also say that is he really the president of the united states so that's the role of the ministry of climate change over here that it has to deal with, deal with climate change but it's dealing with these nice beautification projects right now right like trying to polish it or that kind of situation um yeah. okay and then this also is is the is my favorite new topic uh, banning plastic bags in islamabad is that also the ministry of climate change it's the environment protection agency and i think district administration of islamabad and and this is also being packaged as a solution for pakistan's environmental problems yeah it is okay. but again the the solution to it they they're making degradable plastic bags so they are going to be microplastics in the water now which are going to be more harmful than in many cases for the whole food cycle so the solution there isn't clearly thought out as well also my understanding was that degradable plastic bags are fully biodegradable they are not yeah, yeah not. that's so, like talk, that's yeah. like saying a light cigarette is healthier than a normal cigarette it's less unhealthy yeah that's like, like saying that you can have super critical coal fired energy plants it's just simply not true man it's just simply not <laughs> okay um <laughs> so the diesel thing how who who needs to, i'm going to use this podcast and solve climate change for pakistan once and for all um <laughs> so who do we who do we get to for the fuel quality situation there was mention of lobbying with the lahore high court how is yeah, that so, what's the pathway so there fuel, fuel quality is issue that the petroleum division deals with so at the federal level we have the petroleum division that controls petrol marketing that basically is the regulator for all these petroleum uh, marketing companies and it decides what sort of fuel standards we use so the idea is that the provincial uh, assemblies can create issue resolutions that request the federal government that fuel quality standards have to be upgraded because it's creating the situation and then the fed at the federal level the national assembly can take up those resolutions but at the same time we have a petroleum division which is i would it's i would clearly say that you have a clear regulatory capture of the petroleum division because uh, they allowed these companies to charge uh, extra taxes which had to be used for upgrades but didn't get a, uh, didn't get up being used for upgrades so you have regulatory capture of the petroleum division and obviously from their side we don't see fuel quality being upgraded but on the other hand the issue is that pakistan imports a lot of its diesel from kuwait uh, okay. about 60% of our diesel comes from kuwait and kuwait sort of warned them that we are upgrading our fuel quality standards in 2020 
Kuwait Petroleum Company is going to shift from Euro 2 to Euro 5 diesel. So right. they told the government that we're only going to be able to send, sell Euro 5 diesel to you. And then Petroleum Division sort of got into a shock that at inside the country we're making Euro 2 diesel. So uh, technically speaking, at, in 2020, there might be a situation that you might have two types of diesel within the country if we continue importing from Kuwait. We might end up finding another supplier like Iran because Iran still makes uh, Euro 2 diesel. But the whole situation is sort of a huge, huge mess up because we should have uh, improved our fuel quality standards over the last 15 years. India did it, all of the other regional countries did it, we didn't. But this is where the problem, the heart of the problem is the petroleum division. You have, uh, you had uh, the Minister of Petroleum being changed for poor performance. Uh, then you have an advisor for petroleum now advising the Prime Minister. But fuel quality and out of our, all of our own, I would say Rafa would be really, really pissed if I mentioned this. But they decided to, uh, that to save money, we might produce the wrong quality of petrol. This was one of the suggestions that they came up with. So the whole idea of improving isn't anywhere right now. This difference between Euro 2 and Euro 5 diesel, and I was pretty surprised when you just mentioned Euro 2 because I happen to live in Europe and here it's all about currently cars are on Euro 4, we're going to move to Euro 5, and Euro 2 is several generations behind. On a technical level, just for my information, is Euro 5 diesel incompatible with engines that are currently running Euro 2? Uh, no, it isn't. So, you uh, you have older vehicles. Technically, all vehicles older than 10 years should be retired. In Pakistan, that, like, that practice doesn't happen. But uh, all vehicles on road should pass certain vehicle inspection tests. And uh, the current vehicles that, were com that have been coming in are basically set for Euro 2 diesel. But it doesn't mean that Euro 5 won't run in them. It basically means Euro 1 diesel won't run on them. Okay. Better quality diesel can run on them. And the difference between Euro 2 and Euro 5 is that Euro 2 has 500 parts per million of sulfur. Euro 5 has 50 parts per million. So you have a huge, huge difference in what sort of emissions come out of the diesel. And with Euro 5, your catalytic converters can work, your uh, particulate emit emission filters can work. With Euro 2, even if your car has a catalytic converter, it can't really run. So you're also putting out a lot of carbon monoxide in there. Right. And I suppose it's also inefficient, like you're burning more fuel than you're yeah, using. Yeah, it's in inefficient. Yeah. 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 Um, so then the second issue in terms of greenhouse gas, well, a solution for this ideally would be people just stop using less cars and more public transport. Um, exactly. How, how has that discussion been in terms of a, a Lahori context? In Karachi, I'm from Karachi, and in Karachi we have those insane buses that run around all the time. Um, but what I noticed with those was apart from the pollution and everything, it's, it's a very specific, uh, I guess... You could call it like a financial strata of the society that would use those buses. But the idea of public transport has to be taken into by society as a whole on like a much larger scale than it already is. Is that not true? Mm -hmm. But well, I uh, mean, yeah, assuming that public transport wasn't part of the discourse, it always has been. 
You know, public transport's been taken out of the system by the way we design our cities. Our cities are uniquely designed in favor of automobile transport. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of European cities that developed before the automobile and relied on canals and on the train system yes. uh, during the industrial by means for means of transport. And it was only until the 20th century that the cars showed up and they, they, they started designing cities for cars. So a lot of old European cities are very small, they're very walkable. And this is even true in the United States. Uh, on the eastern seaboard, a lot of cities predate the automobile. Uh, but the real money and development in our cities has been post-partition and it has been almost solely by the automobile elite. Our rail system that the British left us has been hijacked by a diesel truck-based transport system. And since the 1990s, we've had a liberal loan-based uh, automobile purchasing policy, which has just fueled the amount of cars we have. And we're putting some of the filthiest petrol into these cars and expecting that everything will be okay. Yeah, it's I not. remember Karachi once upon a time, my parents tell me, had a circular railway system that a lot of people used. And there was recent discussion with the PTI government about bringing this back. Um, but do you think that steps like the Lahore Metro, Peshawar Metro, and I think there's a metro in Karachi, are those beneficial in these terms, at least from this point of view? No, they're very, see, we've allowed our cities to develop, so they favor car transport. We, and it's very difficult to imagine a city and to read to change the trajectory of a city from being automobile dependent to being public transport dependent because there are a lot of complicated features here. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, transport isn't financially sustainable in areas that doesn't have a certain amount of urban density yes. because then the bus don't fill up and they don't pay for themselves. Um, so you've got to redesign your cities. And that requires vision. But right now, people, you know, a friend of mine tells me he's, he's in the cement business. So he's in the know. He says when his, his, uh, his people tell him, when, when anyone makes a bit of money in, in, in the Punjab, the first thing they do is they get a motorbike. And yes. then they buy, then and they do it with cement. But there's no you know, having a, a thorough transport, a trans, a public transport system if the fuel that's being used is equally bad and, and if, you know, they have their high emissions coming from them. The entire point of a revised public transportation system would be this would be to install an eco-friendly one. So just throwing, obviously, just throwing more buses into a city it might not work financially. And if those buses are also spewing gases, then me, we might me, not help anything. We're not. We're the, it's bad enough, Ali, that I can just say, look, I mean, the thing is, you're either looking at choking and dying because of the smog and air pollution or poisoning your kids or you start using the cycle tomorrow. Tomorrow, none yeah. of this will happen. What will happen? Nonsense. Because then, what will happen means that you know millions of us will die because of heart-related and lung-related ailments. Millions of us, and so really, it's it's you know it's a failure of people to understand that there are actual lives on the line here. We don't have the time to think about these things. We have to stop. I mean, you have to have public transport. It has to be the highest quality fuel, and it has to be now. And right. if it isn't, then, then shut it down because people are dying. And and also there was this interesting thing I read with like like more uh, new technology aspect was where in certain cities in the U.S. they've discovered that these ride sharing apps like Uber and uh, Lyft and like our Kareem have actually resulted in fewer people using public transport. So that's just a new sort of issue that no one really thought of, and that ties into the fact that. Uh, public transport needs to be financially viable, like it needs to be going through routes where people will use it for the system to sustain itself. 
do you think uh, the other people working with climate action Sarah, do you think uh, there's any understanding of this at the level where decisions need to be made well I, I would I would clearly say that public transport in Pakistan is largely wasn't even present before Kareem and Uber started so at that comparing the US to Pakistan is sort of very very different in the sense that maybe we can start blaming these small private actors if the government had some so if you have no provision for people to use what are they supposed to do there they'll end up using rickshaws they'll have to go they, somewhere yeah they'll have to use rickshaws other diesel run buses something so that's always there the real issue over here is that the what government if if the government wants people to start adopting public transport they'll have to do what other cities did vehicle restrictions making it more difficult to drive during rush hours have uh, emission charges for vehicles that were older so they have to be retired after 10 years all of these things can happen and will happen like you have vague, right now you have car prices going through the roof and obviously the demand is going down so that's how it works when uh you have private transportation becoming expensive people will want to use to public transportation or they'll want to use ride sharing they'll start uh traveling together families will start using vehicles together so if that comes as a policy and the intent is shown then obviously people will start adopting it the whole idea ke log karte nahi hai that will go out of the window then right and also this um, limiting uh, traffic like our, our best friend china in in beijing uh, i think there is a thing where if you have a certain number plate you can only drive yeah. or like two days of the week and that's mm-hmm. how they're trying to reduce uh, their traffic because their their pollution is like on a whole other level in london in in london you recently had the ultra low emission zones where yeah. cars can no longer enter right. in certain hours yeah so yeah. that's how it works Mm-hmm. No, but I mean, I, I do want to in, uh, uh, interject here and say that no matter how much we overhaul the public transportation system, and I am 100% with Rafi here that we must do it, and Gawar, of course. But you and and it, it's not just about changing the mindset to get people into it. It's also about providing safety for females, and I really do have to speak about this here. I know just how destructive and just how terrible my car. fuels are for the um uh, uh, with the greenhouse gas emissions but given the choice to take public transportation let's say there was the option i would have a thousand concerns about my security and i know a lot of females avail them no doubt about it but it's not because they feel safe it's because they have to and even if we all were made to then then you got you've got to supplement your um, you got you got to supplement your public transportation system with additional policies that that look after uh, women and and children and the elderly and um so so we can't dismiss that and i can give you a range of excuses i, I, I completely agree with you sara um and i just want to add and say that there was a study done a couple of years ago near over 50% of global commuters are women around the world so this is not just and it is very much a pakistan problem but it's not just it's a global problem and the thing is for the for the for the assault and violence that we continually hear and and read about in our public transport system that's committed against women there is absolutely no accountability not against the perpetrators of this have you ever ever once read ke bus wale ka license cancel ho gaya or 
या किसी के खिलाफ कोई एक्शन लिया it's a specific subset of the population and and that's because everyone who can afford to not use a bus just definitely does not use it and usme uh, bhi there is there's a ladies section jise kehte hain chhota sa towards the front of the bus i don't know how safe that is um what this, if there are any standards and nothing's obviously being police no i want the schools and universities step in here why don't they make it mandatory for children to come on school designated buses which are safe when they guarantee that they're safe to the extent that they can of course and why don't uh, schools institute a carpooling policy when i mean during ra- during school hours um traffic is bad in, in lahore and in karachi also and even in islamabad uh, bigger cities i can speak for shouldn't the private institutions at the very least sort of take these steps to begin with with regards to schools and 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 education dawar i think you were also trying to say something i'll just get to you in a second but with the yeah. word work of climate action we have have you guys been speaking to schools and stuff as well also tying into our earlier discussion about uh, educating children yes yeah. yeah, so that's that's right now agle yeah, yeah. <laughs> So so in Karachi we have Lyceum and Nixer being approached and they're on board so Karachi organization team has already done it in Lahore uh, a lot of schools haven't opened yet so that's what we are planning that's what we're going to be doing the entire next week the week after that hmm. uh Lyceum and uh Nixer are pretty like upper class schools in a Karachi yeah, context yeah. um even if we go to people with loads of branches like city school and beacon house these aren't really every man schools so mm-hmm. i suppose so pk has every uh, it has every plan to go to government uh, schools yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, in fact rafa will add more on this yeah also i want to say you know the thing is you're right that the message is for public schools uh, and we're very lucky in lahore to be in touch with the deputy commissioner and she's promised to introduce us to some of the schools within the lahore division uh, but the thing is the way the way the climate crisis and climate ethics are going to work out it's not a question of teaching the common man it's about teaching people ethical responsibilities and the, frankly it's the rich and affluent who have a larger carbon footprint and a climate liability attached to them than the so called common man so the messaging has to be to the minority elite because they are the they are the they are the 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 safe keepers of this capitalist consumerist lifestyle you know as people grow up the economic ladder if they want to have cement houses and they want to buy clothes every year and they want to eat beef and they want to drive cars then we're dead so it's it's the elites that you have to focus on especially and that's just because of the way climate ethics has to be redefined as well I suppose that sort of mirrors what people use as an excuse in the global play of things that the rich countries have the bigger footprint and they should take charge and even from a a macro level in Pakistan I suppose we can use the same sort of logic that the more affluent you are the higher the likelihood of you having a bigger 
carbon footprint will be. Uh, Davar, did you want to add something earlier? No, I, I would just wanted to say that when we are discussing how we approach school children, the, there again comes the idea that we are basically going to be doing the job what the state should be doing. Right. And when, in a lot of these cases, when we do try to do that job, the bureaucratic red tape way which we have to cross never lets you allow to do that job. So in that sense, that's where we think that going to schools may not be the best approach. Instead, we should be lobbying towards the actual ministers and the school education departments. This is something I was thinking of in, in when you were talking about the petroleum ministry as well. Is Are there financial interests at stake which are keeping people from yeah. supporting the thing? Like, yeah, so uh, what, what, what I got to know is that uh, you have these diesel trucks which do most of the transportation around the country. Yes. And when you improve the fuel quality from Euro 2 to Euro 5, uh, certain other components within the car's engine might also have to be changed because the reduction in sulfur in these fuels also reduces the lubricant lubrication power of those fuels. Right. So you will have to be, maybe have a more uh, more frequent engine oil changes. So that's one thing that I've got to know. The other thing was that when you with the upgradation of the fuels also requires all these refineries which have to introduce desulfurization plants and all these refineries uh, most of these refineries are 50 to 60 years old like park park refinery is from the 1960s then you have other refineries built before the partition as well which is british built uh, so as a whole that infrastructure might not even be able to upgrade because it's so outdated you might have to build new refineries from scratch. So that is also maybe one thing that the government doesn't want to touch at this point. Yeah, and also because obviously people in power have are also closely linked nearly everywhere to large financial interests. And when yeah. the bottom line starts to be impacted by improvements, people are like, let's just push these as forward as we can until we have to take that hit. So I suppose that would be a big element of any improvements of such a wide scale that we might have to bring about in um, Pakistan. That's so that's sort of the fuel segment. How are we? What's the energy scenario like? Um, we love burning coal to produce power and yet Bijli Vesibi is an issue in Pakistan. Uh, what what are our major failings in in the power sector? Apart from coal, are there any? Uh, you know, I, I want to first of all uh, acknowledge that uh, uh, one of one of uh, uh, the members of, of uh, Climate Action PK, um, Advocate Aha, has filed a public interest petition in the Lahore High Court regarding an energy and climate change issue, because she has found that furnace oil-based or, or fossil fuel-based tariffs are actually more expensive than renewable energy tariffs that are available in the market. Mm -hmm. And that, as a policy, the government of Pakistan still supports fossil fuel-based uh, energy plants or energy units, even though it's cheaper. And on a commercial basis, she says, there's no reason why you would invest in anything but renewable. So she's filed a high court case on that. And that's where we stand. Yes, there are very strong mafias invested in the status quo, invested in the amount of coal that comes into the country, yes. in, the, in the supply chain that brings it in, in the, in, the, in the furnace oil that comes in imported into the country and the supply chain that brings it in. 
you know there's a huge huge infrastructure and mafia involved in the energy sector in the production cycles that these these energies produce most energy in pakistan is consumed in urban areas it's yes. it's in the dehaton mein to load shedding 18 18 ghante load shedding you know so again it's the rich in their habits that are being subsidized by electricity and it's, it's absolutely filthy and as a policy we are we are still encouraging fossil fuel based when we know it's cheaper to do something else so it's fantastic that she's filed a case in the high court and i hope the high court's intervention can bring sense to the policy makers in the petroleum division yeah i do remember uh, a while ago uh, reading in the news i don't know if i remembering this correctly but there was some mention of pakistan reaching out to germany for assistance in some new coal fired power plant in germany was like that's that's last century's work if there is renewable will support you <laughs> germany still has coal fired power plants so don't let them get away with that but right. the thing that tell you is that they they have had a remarkable upsurge in solar power plants mm-hmm. um and what happened and i'm going to tie this back into see into the air quality here actually is that uh, it was german demand for renewable energy mostly because of the green party and its influence on political decision making over there that they had a feed in tariff system that if you had a rooftop that was free in the afternoon you could put a solar panel on it and sell the electricity in your house uh, while you were at work and this actually resulted in close to 13 megawatt no 13000 megawatts of energy being supplied into the german grid system in a five year period and this was in pakistan total install capacity was only 20000 megawatts in 2013 yeah. so the germans bought a, a huge amount of solar panels because of political will those solar panels incidentally came from china mm-hmm. china has sand and the silica and the manpower and the labor to be able to manufacture these solar panels but none of their none of none of their markets within china had the money to be able to spend on the solar products that were the price that they were in 2013 so what the chinese did is they built up a capacity to develop and construct and manufacture solar panels to sell to european and first world countries most of which was soaked up by germany mm-hmm. and what wound up happening in china is the cost of solar production dropped dropped dramatically enough that it's become available to their domestic market which means that china can now make a viable transition from its coal fired power to a renewable resource and the fact that it isn't is is political i grant you that but some evidence of its will to move to a renewable energy resource is found in the fact that it's selling its coal fired power plants to anyone who wants them and these happen to be african countries and pakistan pakistan has requested uh, energy oh, plants from china had nice. energy plants from china um and the thing is what the chinese are going to do is we, i've spoken to someone in 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 government in china because he was making a thing of president z's assumption of moral authority on climate globally uh, would be the chinese leadership and i said well you know one thing is is assuming moral authority on climate leadership and the second is selling pakistan coal fired power plants to which the response was well you asked and paid for them of course and this perfect financial sense for the chinese because they're going to sell us these and once our politics turns in the next couple of years immensely against the pollution that these plants cause the chinese will sell us the incredibly cheap solar power plants that they've been manufacturing for the last 20 years and that uh, ali in the business is called the double tap <laughs> um okay so is there is there uh, i might probably know the answer um davar do you think you, you have to leave yeah i'll have to 
sure, sure, no worries. Um, yeah. uh, Anything I can say in the last three minutes. <laughs> uh, Climate Action PK, what are they doing uh, with regards to... I, th- I sort of know what the answer is going to be with regards to how does the government feel about moving towards greener energy sources, but what has your experience... Have, have you had experience in this regard? Um, because this also uh, contributes to the in, smog scenario. In a lot of these things that we discuss, we cannot exactly blame the current government because they might not have had a very big part to where we stand today. For example, uh, issues of urbanization isn't uncontrolled urbanization isn't exactly their fault. And fuel quality standards not being upgraded in the last 10 years is not exactly their fault. So with Climate Action PK, we also sort of give them benefit of the doubt that the demands we're going to put forward are basically to make Pakistan a more climate-friendly country. And with the government in power, it was part of their manifesto that they're going to be very, very climate-friendly. So it's basically not exactly in opposition to them. It's sort of something that we think that they should be doing because they promised that they're climate-friendly, environment-friendly. And in a sense that if they really are serious about this, they would generally be very, very helpful with all of this. So that remains to be seen that uh, will there be any roadblocks, any hindrances when the actual march happens, when we're actually looking for permissions for the march. So that's, in a sense, what we're trying to find out right now. And I'm sure after this this experience, we can have a solid judgment on that as well. I'll, I'll tag this again at the end, but you mentioned the march. Pretty good. Could you just give out some more details about the march that people listening who might be interested can yes. check it out? So uh, the march is scheduled for September 20th, and that's Friday. Uh, in all the cities that we're planning right now, Karachi, Lahore, Islamabad, we had a few people reaching out from Gilgit as well, few from Peshawar. We're trying to have other cities on board as well. But the idea is that we are going to have a march on prominent uh, venues, prominent intersections of the cities, and then conclude with small small events on public places, public venues, which would be uh, speeches, few short plays, basically an all-around campaign to raise awareness around the issue. And that, in a sense, is the primary aim of our first climate march because uh, we know we have a huge, huge gap in awareness and awareness is the primary thing that we're going for over here. And and obviously, you mentioned this is the first one. Are you planning more such events in the future? So in Lahore, we have the smog issue and I think uh, that would require a new, uh, separate effort during the winter months as well mm-hmm. but uh, since the global climate strike is going to be a recurring thing uh, Pakistan should be on board with it and Pakistan whenever that comes up again uh, we'll obviously organize for that again great great all right um, Davar I will let you go if you have to run uh, thanks for making the time thank for you this. so much thank you for having me Ali great where can people find you on the internet if they have more questions uh, uh, they can go to my Twitter. I tweet at at the Lahore Wala. Okay. So that's my Twitter, and uh, separately they can reach at the Climate Action page as well. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Dawar. Thanks so much. Great. Goodbye. Bye bye. Thanks, Dawar. Um, 
Sarah, I'd like to pivot back to something that you mentioned with regards to your work uh, in... in... Before, you, before you please delve into my work, I just thought, sort of want to circle back to what Rafi said about renewable energy and in the uh, uh, petition before the uh, Lahore High Court. Yes. A lot of people sh- um, have the misconception that renewable energy is extremely expensive and I'd like to sort of say something that sheds that once and for all. Okay. So the latest report from the International Renewable uh, Energy Agency or IRENA mm-hmm. has found globally that several of the most commonly used renewables, um, including solar and hydropower, onshore wind, um, they are now uh, either cheaper or uh, at par with fossil fuels and definitely will be by 2020. Right. And some, and some are already more cost effective. And, and also uh, that the cost of installing solar panels has fallen by 73% since 2010. And that's okay. something I just I leave on your uh, show. Yeah, I'm okay. sorry. I'm, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I can vouch for that because I got a solar panel in 2010 and it has paid for itself several times over. Yeah, um, I do. I do remember the on, on, on and off on Twitter when people are talking about solar panels. Uh, there seems to be people who are interested in getting them installed have have been saying that it is getting much cheaper. Are there any, do we know of any large-scale renewable energy uh, operations in Pakistan? We we keep talking about dams, uh, but in terms Gandhi of like... Azam, solar project in Punjab uh, during the last PMLN government's uh, tenure, yeah. I think is, I'll check on Google right now, but, but it's uh, several hundred megawatts of solar electricity on the grid, and it's a, actually a very successful project. Excellent. No, and, and they couldn't they couldn't manage its upkeep or something, or they found its upkeep very expensive. Did it, I think I read that somewhere as well. And so they sold it, and they sold it for a profit. Yeah. <laughs> Who did they oh. sell it to? Like a private party a or thousand, a thousand megawatts? I mean, that's a huge investment. Yeah. Um, and someone in the sector picked it up. And this is up and running now. Yeah, I believe so. Okay. I understand. So. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I I wouldn't be humiliated at all. I would stand corrected, honestly. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, No, uh, I mean, I'd I'd rather believe a happier story for a while before being confronted by life's realities. But I've had clients set up up one megawatt. uh, There was a hospital client of mine that set up a one megawatt unit on its rooftop because it had the, the rooftop space. And then it was copied by another client of mine is a paper mill and they've set up a one megawatt unit as well. And these are smaller things. Um, but do you know that, by the way, it's been several uh, several thousand megawatts have been put onto the grid because of the new, um, what is it, uh, feedback tariff. So people in, in Lahore and in Faisalabad and Islamabad, I understand, if they have solar installed, they can sell the electri- extra electricity back to the grid. Back to the grid. And oh, really? Okay. Um, you said they're clients of yours in, in what capacity? I'm an environmental lawyer. So, so no, I mean, uh, would that be, so you give advice to these people based on their concerns of such sort? That's a very generous way of describing my work. I wish I had your skills to, to write my, my sort of uh, internet page. Uh, see, I can't even say it properly. Right. <laughs> my page. <laughs> yes, something like that. That's what I do. Okay. So, so there's these, uh, Hospitals and other clients, they would approach you for advice on maybe reducing their environmental footprint and through this 
um they get to this um okay let's let's move on to another thing i want to ask which was i read your piece on on the psychological uh impact of uh climate change and sort of depression a long time ago i did an episode on this podcast with a friend of ours who happens to be a psychologist herself and that was at the time uh when we were marking one of the aps anniversaries and i wanted to ask her about her work done when when these terror-related incidents were much more common in Pakistan and the sort of impact it had on maybe the direct affectees and then also like the wider population. How have you come across a lot of people in Pakistan or or a significant number who are uh, worried about the impacts of climate change, their perceived inability to have any impact on it and and are as a result uh, mentally affected by this as a day-to-day? I'd like to say yes. I'd like to put myself out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, me too. You can add me to the thing. Yeah. Um, no, so I'm not a, uh, of course, I'm not a psychotherapist here. And, I'm, um, and um, I can't say I've um, got any medical sort of data to supplement this. Uh, but yeah, I've met a lot of people and generally they will characterize their their sort of feelings as helplessness or over or a feeling of, overwhelming helplessness again uh, because of like the climate crisis or because of of environmental issues and that's pretty much what eco-anxiety is it is that feeling of sort of chronic fear of environmental doom Mm -hmm. and um, it manifests itself in this recurrent feeling that whatever you do is just not going to be good enough because the crisis is so much bigger than what your input into it can be the consequence uh, of this is that the little step that you're going to take, let's say you're in a carpool or you're going to close your tap while you're brushing your teeth, you even stop doing that because you think it's so insignificant. Yeah, which is what uh, mentality sort of uh, overpowers yeah. your uh, actions. And uh, which is why I feel it's so pertinent to keep stressing that individual. And even though Rafe is 100% correct when he says that it is actually... Uh, your fossil fuel burning and your energy sector that will make the actual impact on greenhouse gas emissions or the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, it is still pertinent that we keep encouraging people to do uh, what they can and to play their part. And and uh, part, of parcel, part and parcel of that encouragement is to give them hope that there is possibility. Although, I mean, current sort of statistics and, 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 and climate change data suggests that we're beyond that point. Right. But, um, but for, us to, for us to say something or for Climate Action PK to say something, <laughs> I think that would uh, discourage people from, from, put, from giving in their sort of effort. Um, uh, I think would defeat the entire purpose. It would fuel like a homegrown battle for us. Then. Yeah, we might we might be beyond the point of maybe things going back to the situation they were, but we're definitely in a position to reduce further worsening to a great degree. Yes, we can't reverse climate change anymore. I think we're definitely beyond that point. Yeah. What we can do is we can curb it to so we so, so we so we don't exacerbate it. We don't make it worse for generations to come. And we can also start adapting to it because it's, it, is a, it is our lifestyle now. Climate change is going to change your lifestyle, has changed your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. The sooner we accept that and start adapting to it, uh, the better. Yeah, a part of affecting lifestyles and adapting to it, and Rafi, you might also be able to weigh in on this. Um, I've read in places here and there that there will be 
people foresee there being mass migrations as a result of you know unchecked climate change um and and pakistan does have in maybe because of economic interest in the past but they, there's like a rapid urbanization situation anywhere in pakistan where people leave the rural agricultural perhaps areas and then so if the agricultural system starts being heavily affected further uh, by climate change as well of as as with all the other issues that exist right now do we see this becoming like a major issue in pakistan where cities just start growing because there's climate refugees coming in and then you know collapsing under the weight of is that this is not something to be foreseen the mass migrations have already occurred in badin and sin Mm. because of the lack of fresh water coming through the indus through and flushing through the delta to the sea there's been sea water intrusion into literally hundreds of thousands of acres of land which was otherwise arable and people whose livelihoods were were farming and tilling uh, found that their lands had become absolute waste yeah. and to leave and and participate in in the cash economy of the cities so mm. what happens is folks with the money the folks with the land the folks who are healthy the folks who are young out in the rural areas are the first to leave because they have the ability to do so and what we're seeing what we're seeing now this is not a foreseeing what we're seeing now is the hollowing out of these rural communities as a result of mass migration you're left with the oldest the sickest and the poorest and the most vulnerable because everyone else is left there has been migrations and just to put this in context again the 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 difference between a degree and a half and 2 degrees of warming in in global warming is the difference between 30% of the glaciers in the north of pakistan melting or 60% of the glaciers in the north melting and the truth of the matter is it's not a degree and a half or 2 degrees business as usual suggests that we're going to probably plateau out at 3 and a half 4 degrees mm. and at 3 and a half degrees in this century they're not going to be any glaciers and what that means is the people of the mountains are going to move yeah because their our way of life will be impacted and, and, and the, they'll try and participate in the cash economy of our cities as well yeah and that might just keep pushing the cycle of destructiveness further um another thing that i i think about often is that because the the system of the environment and the climate it's so vast and there's so many there's so many like interlinked paths that we perhaps even with all our current knowledge might not see is these estimates say that it's a 10 year thing we have 10 years till this happens or you know 100 years till all the glaciers are gone but these things don't often happen in a linear fashion so there there could be like small changes that suddenly end up being having like a cataclysmic um oh, impact no, saw the of, of bolsonaro and the you know a flagrant grant of of forestry of deforestation license no one could foresee that um absolutely nobody could foresee the amount of water that greenland lost just in july it was several gigatons yes, of water in yes. one day when well, the official prediction was that that level of glacial melt would occur in 2070 yeah so yeah there there's plenty of literature now uh that it, it's not a question of you know can we do anything about it but a question of how we redefine our life our culture and our morality in a time of climate change because this is going to happen we're going to see um mass starvation and this is what Roger Hallam of Extinction Rebellion talks about mass starvation and here in the developing world in Asia and South Asia and Southeast Asia 
hundreds of millions will die because of pollution. Yeah, and then if if these uh, adverse climate effects link will obviously link into the extinction of species as well, we might not have a complete understanding right now of what that might play into. Like when one species is removed from the ecosystem, how many other circles uh, fail because of it? Yeah. And how many new invasive species come in as a result? Um, I saw on social media that one of the results of the fires in the Amazon is that blue parrot that came from the Rio cartoon animation yeah. can no, is now extinct in the wild. Oh, it's done? Yeah. No, we're in a species extinction right now. The biodiversity day that took place in May this year recorded that we're in a sixth species extinction. And it may have to do with the fact of the incredible amount of carbon concentration we have in our atmosphere. The last time it was so high was 800,000 years ago when a meteor hit the planet and knocked out 95% of everything that lived here. Mm -hmm. And and other things like uh, changing the chemical composition of of freshwater, seawater, the temperatures, how that affects fish, their migratory patterns, all of that is... You know, it just ties into that fact that it's it's the problem is like maybe too too big to even comprehend, and um, yeah, and so how do you absorb it as a society and a people? You know, yeah. Um, and whereas on the one hand, like you, we're we're experiencing mass extinction of uh, species and and flora and fauna, we're also birth climate change is also now responsible for birthing new viruses. So with with melting permafrost, yes. which is um, which is millennia of frozen ice, and it, and it holds carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases within it. Now that it's melting, not only are those greenhouse gases being released, but um, but you know viruses that we haven't. These are alien viruses we didn't even know of. Mm. They and and they are uh, surfacing. We have no idea how to, how we'll deal with them. We have no resistance to them. And climate change um, also sp- increases the spread of diseases. So a lot of, because because of warmer weather, basically, mm-hmm. diseases now spread fa- f- uh, f- uh, further and faster. Bacteria flourishes. And, exactly. And um, I, I'd like to mention also that malaria and dengue are, in, are on the rise and a one degree rise in temperature will increase mal- the spread of malaria and dengue by about 10 percent that's yeah Skin. wild yeah so um that's very- just to put into like real life context recently in karachi we had that insane monsoon spell and for the past few years in Sindh, we've been having the flooding scenario i remember with regards to the flooding thing like the first time this major Sindh floods happened it was a big issue the whole country was sort of galvanized into sending aid and Fakhri Alam was at the BF airport and a, a museum in Karachi and it was a lot of noise. But they've been happening every year pretty much since um, and people have just seemed to have moved on. These are all real life right, happening currently impacts of climate change, are they not? Absolutely. So they're definitely, so changes in weather patterns, monsoon precipitations, um, they're all uh, related to climate change as it exacerbates sort of the rains or it, or as our weather patterns alter. And, and not just alter, but there's an abnormal alteration in our weather patterns. And uh, so rains that were supposed to come earlier are coming later or they're coming with more intensity. 
um, and urban flooding is is one of the greatest impacts of climate change on most sort of large on on most of the larger cities. Yeah, I read somewhere that uh, look the thing is when you design a city, you design its drainage system based on some sort of historical pattern. And so what a, what a sort of urban planner or a sewage, sewage and sanitation person will look at is the 100 years preceding to see what sort of average rainfalls they were and what were the outliers at the time, you know. And so they can plan for what uh, average amount of rainfall will take place. And the truth is that in most cities in Pakistan, it only really rains two or three months of the year. Mm -hmm. The rest are really just small scattered showers. So you don't design a city or you don't design a sanitation system in, in a developing country, um, especially with the statistics be behind you suggesting that you need, uh, say, sanitation and sewerage for 200 millimeters of rain in July. Uh, so you'll design it for that. But the thing with climate change, as my friend Danish Mustafa continually points out, is that averages are now out the window. You know, we're now in a land of extremes. Right. So now what happened in, in Karachi is that I, I believe the the monthly average rainfall of the of, of the month actually fell within a 24 hour period. And the truth of the matter is the city of Karachi is simply not designed uh, for this unprecedented and un unexpected level of rainfall. The sewage system just can't uh, cope with it, mm -hmm. nor should the city design a sewage system uh, perceiving that it's only going to receive thousand year flooding rains. Yeah. You know, you've got to assess your risk and find what percentage of risk is and how much money you have and what best practices you can you can use to, to sort of uh, absorb the water and be resilient. Yeah. And also, uh, we had on uh, on the show this guy. Uh, his name's Pierre Faraz. He runs these um, travel these trips for uh, people. He runs a travel company in Pakistan, and you know, part of his thing was sort of educating people about uh, the country from like an eco tourism. It's not really climate change affected, but he's from Sindh, um, and he has uh, a view as as well. And he was also mentioning with regards to the agricultural practices that because um, our agricultural practices are pretty stagnant in, with regards to when we plant what and when and when it's supposed to be harvested and that sort of stuff. The changing weather and with it the extreme weather impacts have, have wreaked a lot of havoc on people's crops. Like um, it, it rains way before it's supposed to. Things get flooded out and the crops die or it never does rain and it gets too dry before the rains show up. And we've been planting the same way as we have for like decades, if not centuries. Um is is there growing awareness of the impact this will have on our food? Because it, this is only going to get worse in the foreseeable future. Um, do do people understand that this needs like there need to be better agricultural practices? There needs to be better maybe irrigation methods. Looking into these sort of events, is that is there any is there any awareness of that at the levels where such decisions are made? I think the small-scale farmers are already, I mean, by default, they're, they've realized that they've got to alter their uh, agricultural practices, age-old agricultural practices, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and it's not just uh, changes in weather patterns through um, excessive rainfall or no rainfall or, dr or drought periods that affect uh, agricultural output uh, with regards to climate change. But climate change also impacts uh, in Pakistan our agricultural output by speeding up the um, sort of harvest, uh, the speeding up the period of uh, the growth period of a crop. 
So what happens is initially, like the initially that crop, if it was maturing in let's say three months, now matures in a in in two months. Um, but and but what that does is it com- because of ex- because of extreme heat or changes in uh, heat uh, in in certain regions. But what that does is that the next time you plant crop on that soil, that soil is completely devoid of any nutrition, and and your and your crop output is is drastically uh, reduced. Mm. And so, and farmers. Are- yeah, Rafi. Um, sorry, Sarah. If you want to continue, I mean, I thought you were done. No, no, absolutely, please. Because you asked whether people know about it. The the truth is that. Yeah, I mean, the people I've met in the Ministry of Climate Change, uh, Ministry of Food Security and Research, uh, the Agriculture Department here in Punjab, I've spoken to people in K- people policy people know that there is a problem, right? Um, the the question is, uh, the reform is so huge and all encompassing. The question is, how does one go about doing it? Mm. Because I mean, the thing. You know, you, you keep on. As I mentioned this in my article as well. There is Pakistan has an abundance of water. Yes, we're sitting at the at the base of these glaciers. We get the monsoon rain. We've got the aquifer, um, but we take all of this water and put it into four big crops, and that makes money for a bunch of elites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- this system of agriculture was belongs to a colonial system. You know, what what tied to this. Um, and so reform means everything needs to change. There are powerful vested interests in changing the status quo. Uh, there's plenty of water. We just have to make less rice. But then the billions of rupees that the rice exporters make would be compromised. Um, you know, we have plenty of water and it can be used in all sorts of ways. But then the folks who make ethanol and export a half a billion dollars worth of ethanol out of Pakistan every year, uh, their businesses and uh, would be compromised. So this is a huge question of the structure of our economy as well. Hmm. The the accountant in me obviously will wonder that it makes sense that these people are protecting their own financial interests. But given the scale of the money um, the, that these exports bring into Pakistan, we to limit them would be perhaps from one aspect the morally and environment practically right thing to do given the future but then how will we supplant the the contribution from this was giving to the country's economy um in a similar time frame though the stone age did not come to an end because we ran out of stones right <laughs> how many times have you said that <laughs> Sara has probably heard me say it a dozen times this week. <laughs> yeah, but but, but it, it makes sense though. <laughs> yeah, but I do. Then I I'm not. Sh- it makes sense. We've we've changed basically our colonial masters yeah, from the, the British the, to the a few. Alternative energies are cheaper than the fossil fuel energies. We know this. It's proven. Right. You know what it is is the vested interests want us to continue the energy resources, the energy use that we have. They don't want to change mm. because it's lots of money in their pockets. You know, this the entire capitalist, consumerist, fossil fuel-based economy has to be broken down and reoriented because it's what's led us to this point. Mm. Yeah. You know, our desire to have launch, lawns, uh, suits renewed <laughs> every year to leather jackets or to have uh, beef sandwiches and stuff. It's this desire, the desire to have cement houses or to have four cars. This lifestyle is what's destroying us. Mm. And it's the affluent who are more to blame uh, for this lifestyle than the people who are disproportionately affected by it. 
I, which are the poor. I suppose a better way of phrasing my question would be, were we to take on these elites in a hypothetical scenario and we uh, we are able to convince them to make their practices significantly more eco-friendly, which might result in a reduction of production overall, which means less money coming in. Are you... Do you feel confident in the fact that newer avenues of revenue generation will rise? Because we are a poor country and we've been taught Hamesha Sikh we're an agricultural poor country. Absolutely. to die this century because of air pollution and you're telling me something that uh, my bottom line is more important. No, no, your bottom line is not more important than all the people, who, more than all the people who died in all the wars of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. This is the failure of our society to be able to comprehend the morality of the place that we're at you know as 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 maya angelou said you don't understand how profoundly racist a question that is mm-hmm. but in this context you have we, we are so imbued in this culture of consumerism that we think these sorts of questions are rational tear it all down How is that even a possibility? How is that even a practical possibility at this point? I mean, we're struggling to convince our government to stop planting more damn trees and start instituting actual policies. And you're saying we should burn everything to the ground. (laughs) No, I I do. I do understand that, you know, that's maybe the reaction. The urgency is what's needed, but Mm. maybe like no arson there. But um, so, I mean, coming back to your question, Ali, uh, for agricultural practices, at least I can say different forms of um, different types of seeds uh, have uh, Pakistan also has produced different types of seeds that are more eco-friendly and more in line with what are now changing climate de- uh, demands. So, for example, in Sindh, where there is saline water, they've they've developed, or Pakistan has developed uh, saline seeds mm-hmm. for uh, crops that can grow in, 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 on saline soil. So why not invest more in uh, research and, devel- and development of, of seeds that require, let's say, less water mm-hmm. to grow. Yeah. Or uh, that can flourish in high temperatures without ruining the soil. Right. The soil quality. And, and so what we need is or definite investment, research, in, and then utilization of alternative forms like of alternative fuels. I'm going to challenge you on this. Most of the people in Pakistan now, a huge proportion of them are young. They're under the age of 30, Right. Um, they're connected online in ways that you and I weren't when we were their age. Do you think they're going to work in a field? No, the people who no, work I- in the field right now are the people who are still going to work in fields. I mean, or fewer. Uh, that's no, close to 100 million people under the age of 30. They've got aspirations. And those aspirations won't be satisfied with better agricultural practices. You know, the thing is, agriculture is basically for, for, for people who don't have, it's an economy for people who don't have skill. You no, put them into- I'm, not lim- I'm not saying that we should restrict our research and innovation to agricultural practices. Definitely not. In fact, I think that, ch- that ch- people under 30 are more cognizant and aware of eco-friend, of, of, of the need to, to uh, sort of uh, acquire and adapt to eco-friendly practices. You see so many kids abroad uh, completely shunning um, uh, multinational or some product yeah. because, you know, they, 
because they've done something that offends the environment mm-hmm. and also um let's say you know like starbucks had a had a huge increase in its sales uh, last year i think because they um i believe sort of adopted some eco-friendly practices yep. and 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 i mm-hmm. think that 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 people under 30 or a certain age bracket definitely is more prone and and more understanding uh, of uh, the of the need and then also morally more upright i think if we can uh, package being a farmer in like a very instagramable hipster sort of way we'll find very 30 something people turning towards farms but i think also the economic thing you mentioned with starbucks um again forced as a result of who i am <laughs> as as a professional the same people who are running these agricultural practices and textile practices which are currently damaging if i guess a one way of of bringing them to reduce their impact would be to sell the economic benefits of an alternative like the fact that for solar panels if you install small scale solar panels to the system uh you can because no one people in corporations will never take any step completely without thinking of the economic benefit so when it comes to tobacco companies they're against e-cigarettes but now e-cigarettes are big so big tobacco is going to buy a vape company um shell is investing in renewable it, if it makes money that's the easiest way to convince a big corporation to do this um so if we can convince power generating people that theek hai aapne coal power plants lagaye hain pichle 50 saal se but you know look at how cheap solar is you could get that and get that in with not much cost and make more money off it would that not be also a viable way to go about this i would think so uh, i'm not sure if rafi will agree as much as we might want to burn down <laughs> the robber barons of the world no. there's there's a lot to be said with the the types of environmental enforcement that are at play in pakistan mm. um the first generation of environmental enforcement and this is globally you introduce every country introduces a bit of environmental legislation and characteristically it's it's been end of the pipe punishments for polluter pays and uh, what we found is that second and third generation environmental enforcement laws have actually focused on bringing Uh, the economy of a country and environmental concerns into the same principled package mm-hmm. so once you bring environmental concerns into the economic development policies of a country we find that a change can be made and examples are with south korea and the immense amounts of economic development and environmental friendly development that it's done in the last 15 years and also china with its circular economy mm-hmm. so we've got to understand that environmental law the application of the environmental law is not just the punishment of polluters right. but can involve a whole incentive system as as anisa aga proves in her petition that it's cheaper to invest in, in renewable technologies and so the government should be investing in small and medium enterprises and here's the thing you see most of our export oriented uh, industries in pakistan are, are are pretty sensitive to what their consumers and clients in in first world countries want right. in terms of standards and environmental quality yes. but the folks in pakistan when they're buying a shoe don't care about whether or not the tanner has a chromium plant they want a 200 rupees shoe mm. so i'll take sara's optimism about a new generation and something a new ethic in lo- smes but it's really the government to engage smes and bring about this idea that yes you can actually save money by improving your environmental profile yeah so but that that sort of gives like a good summing up of the situation where people want a 200 rupees shoe but that's also part of because economic constraints but maybe they don't know enough about 
you know the environmental concerns and how it affects them and how the making of that shoe um you know would impact their life and then also give people incentives to be more environment like this is sort of turning into a green new deal discussion isn't it <laughs> um okay so we've covered a lot it's been i i asked for two hours of your time it's nearly that time um i think we should start wrapping this up and i'll ask, sure. I'll ask thank you for the time I'm sure <laughs> and this is this is what i would like to do a hundred percent so uh no thank you for coming on i'll ask uh i'll ask like an abstract light fluffy question um are you uh we'll start with zara are you hopeful about the future of pakistan in terms of climate change and the work that needs to be done over hopefully we have 10 years so over the next 10 years do you are you are you hopeful optimistic that we're going to get there and make things better yeah. No. no, great shit. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm uh, hopeful though that uh, with people like Rafe on um, uh, sort of fighting for climate change, um, combating climate change, this you know there's still some possibility. We don't have ten years though. Yeah. Let me let me let me say that uh, we have to act now. The government has to act now. The people have to act now, and. Um, I think civil society can really make an impact. I think students can really make an impact. I think small changes uh, that we will uh, uh, adopt in our daily practices make a huge impact. And um, instead of relying solely on big industries to give up their profit-making um, ventures, we should, as civil society, start shunning them so that they're forced into it. Mm. I think I think that would be the ideal way to go about this because nobody's going to give up making dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Rafi, how about you? I'm going to do. Echo, I'm going to echo the words of this this fantastic man, Bill Drayton, the founder of the Ashoka Foundation. Um, and he he once said, you know, it. We've we've crossed the point where we can fix the world, but we are certainly still at a place where we can manage the chaos. Mm. And I, th- I would invite everyone to look at it that way, that this is actually an increasingly difficult thing to solve. But we're all in it together and we're going to manage the chaos. Right. All right. I guess that's about as hopeful as I can expect you to be given, given the past two hours. Um, yeah, I think that's good. There's work to be done, but it can be done. Is I suppose that's all we yeah. can ask for. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah Thank and Rafe. Uh, before we go, okay. can you shout out uh, Sarah first and Rafe where people can find you online, the work you're doing, how they can get involved uh, with regards to climate action, then overall understanding our situation and policies better. Sarah, how about you go first? Yeah, so I'm available on Twitter at uh, the rate of Sarah Taman. So that's Sarah, S A R A T A M A N. Otherwise, my articles are also uh, in Dawn in the news. And for Climate Action PK, that's like, as Davar said, it's uh, at the rate of Climate Action P and K. And please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. The marches are scheduled for the 20th of September. We hope we will, you will be there. Bring your family, friends, your kids, please. And uh, start changing your lifestyle to accommodate what is now uh, the greatest threat that the, the human race faces. Great. Rafael. 
Yeah, I can't really better that, actually. I'm Rafi Alam. I'm on Twitter at, at uh, R-A-F-A-Y underscore Alam, A-L-A-M. Um, and yes, you're invited to participate in the Climate Strike March on the 20th of September. Uh, the, the at Climate Action PK is on all platforms, on Insta, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Uh, join, follow, and find out how to participate. Great. All right, guys. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, people who've listened this far, thank you very much for coming with us. Uh, our group account is at TPR Pod. I am at the Mahal Upper. Uh, it's I'm Rafi. I'm going to go through this whole thing on I'm editing, and you've show, you've given a lot of references to people doing uh, interesting work and who've done interesting studies. So I'll hopefully be able to link through these. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'll link them in the show notes. Um, thank you guys for coming. Thanks for your time. This has been. Illuminating and Thank depressing. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, hopefully things will get better at some point. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.